Father, thank you for sending your son to us, for us, to be the exact representation of your being, to be the image of the invisible God, to be perfect and holy, to live a life that we couldn't live here on earth, sinless and blameless, to die a perfect death, to uh, be made sacrifice for our sinfulness, and God, to raise again uh, so that we too, as we put our faith and hope in him, can be raised to eternal life with you. We love you and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, it's good to be in the living room today. Uh, If you noticed, all the kiddos came in and because we're going to celebrate baptisms, one thing we love to do around here is to celebrate baptisms because they are a picture of lives being changed. Uh, Baptism is an illustration of that we've been buried in the likeness of Christ and we've been raised to walk in newness of life or raised to walk to a new life. That just as Christ was on the cross, on the cross He paid for our sin, on the third day was raised again. So in baptism we are publicly declaring with our church family, our our family, our friends, our community around us that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and that I identify with His death and his resurrection. I am burying my old self, and I am going public with my faith, and I'm raised to a new life. So in Christ, I've been given a new heart, a new purpose, a a new spirit has been put within me, and baptism is a picture of that. And one thing we love to do is celebrate baptisms. This is not a, a funeral. This is a celebration of new life, a celebration of how God continues to change lives through the good news. This morning, we get to celebrate with six cross pointers who are, uh, are getting baptized. So if the Zegan Horns, you guys want to come up? There you are. Uh, one thing we love to see is how God gets a hold of a family, and not just individuals, but a family. And so uh, this morning, um, we have a mom and a dad and a daughter all getting baptized and uh, publicly declaring their, their faith and trust in Jesus. And, and dad is going to go first, husband's going to go first. So Scott, you want to share a little bit about why you want to get baptized? First of all, uh, the wife and I, or wife and my daughter, decided that they were going to get baptized a couple weeks ago. And I figured, I mean, my wife and I were, we've been working on our marriage for quite a while. We've had a lot of ups and downs. But we've planned on uh, renewing our marriage, renewing our vows here at some point when we can afford it. But um, figured no better way to put the first foot forward to actually start it off right and renew our uh, marriage and faith first. I wanted to make sure I led the family in doing that. Thanks, man. 
Scott came over yesterday and we talked a little bit about it, and um, uh, he got saved, it's been eight years ago, um, but has never gone kind of public with his faith when it comes to baptism. And so uh, I love his desire to, uh, to lead his family in this way through an example. A baptism is, is simply one thing, but now it's a way of life. And I love his desire to, to want to follow up a, a public ceremony like this as a baptism as a public uh, way of life to follow Jesus. So let's do this. Scott, as Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, yes. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sorry, I'm nervous. In 2012, my husband was let go from a good job, which, he was, which was providing for our family. Money had become an idol for me. I knew the more he, my husband worked and sold, the more he made and the more we could spend however we wanted. I was worshiping money more than I was worshiping Jesus. This is when I found Crosspoint. About a month later, after my husband lost his job, I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I knew I had nowhere else to turn. I didn't realize just how much Jesus would change my life. I'd had trials and tribulations. Jesus provided my husband with a job, restored my marriage, which was on the brinks of divorce, and he restored my broken family. Jesus had shown so much grace and love. Earlier this year... My daughter became very ill as of admitted into the hospital. Although I was very scared of the unknown, Jesus continued to love us. Very low hemoglobin and blood transfusions are what our days consisted of. A week into the hospital stay, I began waking up every morning with You Are Not Alone by Owl City running through my mind. Jesus was continuously reminding me that we were not alone in this trial that he was right beside me all alone. Jesus continues to heal my daughter. The grace and love that has been shown through prayers and meals is amazing. I do not deserve his love or grace, but he shows it to me daily. I will forever be grateful for his love and grace because he is forever faithful. Janelle is Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Yes. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> this, is uh, their, this is their daughter, Aaliyah. Sorry, I'm really nervous. Um, like my mom said, before I knew Christ, um, I really didn't have a relationship with my stepdad, and I was really scared when I went in the hospital because I didn't know, because they said I didn't really, like, 
having a 3.2 hemoglobin, I really didn't have a chance of making through it. But we had a lot of doctors and who came in and they would tell us like different answers and it kind of made me really frustrated. And then my, do my mom, I would see her cry a lot and it made me like really mad. And then I just want to thank all the families who would bring like meals to my family and for all the prayers. And I would like cry all the time with my brothers and sisters um, called me because I couldn't really see them. And it just made me like really know that God was with me and everybody was praying for me. So thank you. Uh, so one thing we love to see is when parents baptize their kids uh, into faith, into Christ, and so uh, that's going to happen now. Owen, you want to? Owen McLean is next. Owen, why do you want to get baptized? Because I want to show people who I am, and that's a person who follows Jesus. All right. God loves the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him will spend an eternity with him no matter what happens. Puppy, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Jordan Mead is up next. He's one of our hype students. Um, okay. Um, so I spent 14 years, 9 months, and 9 days of my life belonging to this world, which leads to brokenness. I, I had a wonderful family, friends, home, a town, a school, and a gym. I always thought to myself, I have all that I could ever need, but truthfully, all those things don't matter compared to one thing that I didn't have in my heart, which is God. <clears throat> Growing up, my family didn't go to church. I never really questioned it because I didn't know any better. I thought that everybody was just like me and that just by thinking there was a God in heaven was enough. When I was 10, I started to become friends with someone who is like a sister to me now. I remember the first time that I ever went to her house. I saw Bible verses hanging on the refrigerator and on their walls, and I watched them pray before they ate. I realized then that they went to church every single Sunday. For the first time ever, I felt very different. I didn't like this different feeling where guilt of not attending church was flooding my mind, so I lied to them. I told them that I went to a different church, 
even though I, I didn't. I feared that they would judge my family and I for not going to church, so I used lying to make myself feel better. For me, it was just easier to say that because I didn't realize how wrong it was. In that moment, I should have come to God because I saw how happy that family was, but I didn't. After I hang out with this friend for the first time, I talked to my parents about going to Crosspoint. I was wanting to go not to get to know God, but to be able to say, I go to a church. I wanted to feel like I fit in, and that was why I wanted to start going every Sunday. Um, I started to talk to my parents about it, but they told me we were too busy to go every single Sunday. So I just accepted this and decided that I would just keep lying to people so that I could feel like I fit in. This line continued for the next two and a half years of my life. On December 24, 2013, my mom came up to me and said that she wanted us to go to church at Crosspoint that night for Christmas Eve service. I felt like someone had just kicked me, and I was, my response was, no way. I really don't want to go. People will look at me and judge me for not coming any other time. I was terrified because I was blind to God's grace at this time in my life. We ended up going to the Christmas Eve service, and nobody was negative towards me into the, in the way that I thought people would be. A week later, my mom said that she wanted us to start going to Crosspoint every single Sunday. The same feeling came back to me where I thought people would look down on me for the, for the fact that all these years I hadn't gone to church, and now only part of my family would go. I begged my mom with tears in my eyes to go somewhere else where nobody would know me because many of my, many of my classmates go to Crosspoint. Satan was in my heart and trying to scare me into continuing to not know Christ. At the time, I didn't know this. All I knew was that I was paralyzed by fear. We ended up coming to Crosspoint every Sunday, my mom, my brother, and I. The panic I had created because I hadn't let God into my heart was still there, but it got better. Even though I was regularly coming to Crosspoint for my 7th and 8th grade year, I wasn't a true Christian. I went to church because I was a people pleaser, and I thought that people would think very highly of me for coming. Everything I did those two years was for myself and not for God. I wanted to look good in other people's eyes, so I took any moment I could to act like a Christian, even though I was so caught up in sin. I never studied my Bible, ever. I always wanted to sleep in on Sundays, and many times I would try to find any excuse not to have to come to church. I never wanted to go to youth group, and I never truly wanted to know God. I just wanted to look like I did. Looking back on this time in my life, I now realize how God was standing there with open arms saying, Jordan, it's okay. Just please come and follow me. I love you. I turned away because I thought that the person I was then was good enough for the time and that I would just wait until college to truly devote myself to Christ. I see now that even in my happiest moments, I was broken without God. June 28th through July 4th, 2015, I went to Miracle Camp. In the past, I had had many people tell me that Miracle Camp changed their heart around and it was one of the best places in the world. But to myself, I thought that this was just false and unreal. I thought that because I didn't know God at all, all I had ever known was trusting only myself, who is not very wise at all. And in the weeks leading up to camp, I looked forward to all the activities and to meeting friends. When I first got to camp, I learned right away that it was so much more than that. I was greeted by pure happiness from other campers and Miracle Camp staff. I looked around and saw this beautiful place like I had never seen something so wonderful before. The campus is out in the woods on the Lake and Lot in Michigan. It's absolutely breathtaking, and just being, around, being there fills your heart with um, how beautiful God's creation truly is. I enjoyed every minute of camp, but my favorite part was chapel. I went from being scared to raise my hands up while singing on the first night to being one of the kids jumping up and down with tears in my eyes singing super loud on the last day. I took notes during chapel services, and I really started to reflect on the life I had lived so far. I started to see the ways of this world are broken, and they won't last forever. But God is forever, and God is true. Everything that I experienced in chapel drew me closer and closer to God. The single event at camp that truly turned my life around was on the last night when one of my counselors named Annette shared her testimony with us. 
Annette's testimony is very much like mine, and hearing it made me realize that I'm not the only person who has been scared out of my mind about what people would think of my family and I. Her testimony gave me this huge desire to just share what I felt. So when she was done, I walked up to Annette and asked if we could talk. I told her everything, and I was sobbing the entire time. God was wrecking my heart at this moment, and it was all so magical. And Annette and I prayed together for each other and for our families. I will never forget that Friday night at camp on July 3, 2015. This day was when I found Jesus forever. My roommates and I all ran into our room together after I talked to Annette and just started crying together. God was wrecking our hearts, and Miracle Camp changed me forever. I am now a true Christian, and I see now God's, I see God's love for me. And I know that even when I ignored him all those years, he loved me. Now he's, given, he's, for, he's forgiven me for everything, and it is such a wonderful feeling to know that the one who has power over everything that there ever has been loves and forgives me through his son, Jesus. Great job sharing your story. Jordan, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last up is uh, Allie. Lots of little hands to go by. (laughs) All right, so before I fully accepted Christ into my life, you could say that I had everything backwards. I was raised in a Catholic family who always taught me good works and actions throughout my whole life were enough to get me to heaven. The religious tradition was very important to them, so I just followed right along. I attended private school, went on a mission trip, went on retreats, and never missed church on Sundays or other obligations. For me, this was a way to gain friendships and to get more involved. This was also how I thought that people were saved. All the good works were written down, and once you get the right amount and the right order with the sacraments, then you are suddenly good enough to go to heaven or purgatory after your earthly death. My focus was not on where it should have been. I was only focused on the tradition. Religion was very academic to me. I knew the stories, what I had to do to fulfill my obligations of being a good person, but didn't have anything that would back them up. Even though I am not a musically inclined person, songs often speak to me. One of the songs is by Matthew West called Motions. I felt as if there was something more than what I was doing, which was just going through the motions. Every so often, I would dwell on this for long spans of time, but never acted on my thoughts or reached out to anyone. After a few years of dwelling on whether or not I would be good enough to go to heaven and the unknown, it broke me. I actually got an anchor tattoo on my ankle because it felt like I was being, like, pulled constantly closer to hell. I didn't think I could ever possibly be good enough. I fell into some habits of this world and let them control my life. After a while, the stress of never being good enough really got to me. After a few months of college, everything went downhill. I really didn't know what I was going to do. I continued to go to church, but with the same apathy as before. There was no one there to force me to go, but it's just something that I did to go through the motions and fulfill the other obligations that I had. The stress then turned into anxiety and lack of sleep. Often I would just lay there and stare at my ceiling all night. At first it was just about my future and the unknown, but then it turned into anxiety about everything around me. It got to the point where I would even hurt myself to know that I was still in control of at least one thing. 
This became a habit that I knew I had to change, and this was the first time that I ever decided to reach out to people and ask for help. Second semester last year, I, decided, I uh, started to attend a life group that Crew was hosting. These are small Bible studies where people can just figure out life together. This is one of the major factors in where I'm at today. After a few weeks, I realized that maybe I had never truly accepted Christ into my life. After this, I actually stopped going for a few weeks, but because I felt like I was a fake and couldn't stop the self-hate. I often fell into the trap of telling people that I was fine, okay, or just tired. I never responded to people honestly until one day I reached out to my roommate. I honestly answered with how I was feeling and what had been going on in my life. I was scared of the shame and the repercussions that would come from telling people of how I was feeling, but I was tired of feeling alone. I just knew that something had to change. I told her about how I had been hurting myself and questioning my religion. We talked for many hours that night, and she shared part of her testimony with me, but nothing really changed that night. I didn't talk to anyone for a while until I told my RA. This opened the doors for me to tell other people, and most of those people are with me here today. I gained so much support, but I could tell that there was still something missing. I needed a savior, but I tried to find him in other people. One Sunday, uh, Katie, my roommate, she asked me to come here to Crosspoint with her. And something changed that day, but it wasn't something that I could explain. The sermon was related to how everyone sins and goes through their own struggle, but needs to focus on Jesus alone. After that day, I began to open up more and more to Katie and a few more of my friends. Uh, One night, Katie, she actually flat out asked me if I had ever accepted Christ before, and I thought she was crazy, and I just kind of like stared at her for a little bit. But then I actually decided to think. After I didn't respond for a while, she asked if I even believed in God. I told her that I did, but he couldn't possibly be able to help me, and that I didn't even know where to begin or how to accept him. She then did something that no one had ever done for me before. She asked if she could pray for me. Through my tears, I was able to say yes, and at that moment, I felt a calm come over me. But I still didn't know how to accept Christ, or even if I wanted to. Throughout all of this, I was working with a student at the middle school here in town. And after my field experience, I loved going on long drives. I would get lost and try to find my way back. And the day after Katie had prayed for me, I went on one of those drives. On the radio, the song Not Right Now by Jason Gray came on, and I began to cry, and I actually had to pull over. At that moment, on March 10th, I decided to accept Christ into my life and ask him to be my savior and guide. I've never been more at peace at that moment or okay in what was going on in my life. I was excited to tell other people who had been praying for me and supporting me, but I didn't really know how they were going to react. I couldn't stop smiling the next day, and I decided to share with a few people. Just because I accepted Christ in my life didn't mean that my life suddenly became easier. I still had to deal with my sin, but I had a different perspective on it. A few weeks after accepting Christ, I was able to stop self-harming, and it's been hard, but I know that Jesus is a Savior who is more than willing to help me conquer this. Some of my favorite verses are from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future— nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that no matter what lies ahead before me on earth, I know that God loves me and nothing can change that. I need God's grace every single day in order to survive, but I know that he will always provide. And over the summer, I decided to work at Camp of Champions, and it was great to see all the little kids' smiling faces when I got to share the good news with him, and that is one of the reasons why I decided to get baptized today. Awesome. 
Allie, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, I want to pray. Uh, Father God, we are, uh, we are so grateful for your work. Uh, we are so grateful for your goodness. We're so grateful that you use uh, people to draw more people to yourself. We're grateful for that the news is good and it's been declared. We're grateful for uh, relationships and friends willing to ask a question and, and ask a question of if we truly know you. We're grateful for the work that you're doing in these lives, for the way that you're not only drawing people to yourself, but then sending them out on mission, calling them to a new way of life, a way of life that honors and reflects you. God, we give you all the glory and the credit and the honor. We are grateful to be a part of it, and we lift you up as the one doing all the work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, kiddos, you can head back to class. In your program, when you, uh, when you walked in, there should be some details about a Salvation Army event coming up. And uh, here's Sam Amick and Christy Dunham to tell you a little bit more about that. It's coming up in a couple weeks. Good morning. First things first, uh, go Packers, right? Okay. okay. <laughs> All right, focus. Focus here. Uh, thank you, Pastor Dave, for uh, allowing us to uh, share about this extended ministry, uh, Salvation Army Disaster Services. And uh, my wife, Chris, who's way in the back, and, and myself work for the Salvation Army. And uh, the 2014 uh, November tornado, uh, we served on that tornado, and several cross-pointers did as well. Uh, several uh, a group of you uh, took food up to Benson, and some of you were on the pastoral care uh, team over at Crossroads, and then there were others that were actually on our emergency canteens uh, during that time as well. So the Salvation Army has been trying to uh, set up teams in the, in the last actually six or eight months to be a little more prepared uh, for what might take place in our Tri-County area. And uh, so we actually started a team just about four months ago uh, here at Cross Point. And we're the first ones to get started. Uh, we're going to start one at Crossroads in a, in a couple of weeks, and then uh, others in Peoria. So if you are interested in serving cups of cold water to those that are in need during time of disaster, there are the classes, and it's in your bulletin, your program, uh, September 25th through the 26th and the 26th, uh, 8 to 4 p.m., and there's introduction to Salvation Army Disaster Services, and those classes will be there at Crossroads uh, United Methodist Church. We would like to see you there and um, so that we can expand on our team and we can develop a little bit, uh, a little bit more with our team right here at Cross Point and then represent in the Tri-County area. So thank you, and uh, either one of you have anything else to say?
I just want to say I got to do my first, um, what they call deployment, um, a couple months ago to a small fire locally, and um, got to see it in action, and it is a fantastic opportunity to serve. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, uh, some family news to be praying for. Uh, Crosspoint Family News, this past week, Michelle Agnew's father passed away. And so uh, the services are tomorrow night in Pekin, tomorrow late afternoon and evening. Details of that are on our Facebook page. But uh, be praying for the Agnew family and their extended family as they both uh, grieve his loss and uh, celebrate the life and the legacy that he uh, left and is um, has left for their family. So if you have a Bible, turn to uh, Genesis 1, first book in your Bible. And uh, that's where we'll be <clears throat> this morning. Last week we began a new uh, 13-week series through the book of Genesis that this launches us into a three-year journey chronologically through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. And so today we land in Genesis 1 and 2. And these two chapters serve as the introduction, so to speak, of the Bible. Last week we, we saw uh, three certainties being communicated to us through God's Word. And that was that God created everything and that God created everything good and that God created everything through His Son. And in this story so far, we've seen God create the universe, the heavens, the earth, the land, the water, the animals, the sun, the moon, the stars, but no people yet. And that's what we get to today. And what we'll discover today is a biblical truth that applies to each and every one of us today, whether we are Christ followers or not, that's true for all of us, all people that we encounter this week, this is true of, and it's this, that God has created humanity in His image, that you and I and all the people around us were created in the image and likeness of our God. We are not just a little bit further along or further to the right of the evolution chart, okay? We're not just a random mass of cells that kind of accidentally came together. We were never just a pile of tissue, but each of us, even those of us who are not following God yet, have been fearfully and wonderfully made. We've been knit together in our mother's womb with love and purpose, Creator God who created the universe is also the same God who created you and me, who knew us long before our parents knew us, who knows the number of hairs on our head, the God who says, as, as Job 12.10 describes, in His hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. And so this morning, we want to be reminded of how we've been made in the image of God. And that truth has far-reaching implications for us. If we're Christ followers this morning, if we claim the name of Jesus and confess Him as Lord, we are called to reflect our God in all that we do. We're made in His image, and we're made to reflect Him in everything. And what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 are some ways in which we reflect that image. And we'll be looking at three specific areas. One is that we reflect God in how we rule wisely over the world. Another one is that we reflect God in, in our rhythm of work and rest, and then we reflect God in our relationship with both God and one another and the people around us. The first one, that we reflect God in how we rule wisely over the world. Let's, uh, let's read verses 26 through 31 of Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, 
I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So last week we saw God create, and it, the, the rhythm of it was God spoke and God saw that it was good and kind of back and forth like that. Notice here in verse 31 that God looks back at His creation, that everything He's done, everything that He's created, and He says, Behold, it is very good. As stunning as the stars, the moon, the sun, the, the deep oceans, the vast mountain ranges, the prairies in between, as stunning as the seasons are, the animals, the birds, the fish, as incredible as all those things are, All of them are subject to God's greatest creation, His prized creation, humanity, people. In the image of God, male and female, He created them. Back in July, my friend uh, Josh Trueblood from New Life came and preached, and he preached on uh, the Imago Dei, the Latin phrase meaning that we've been made in the image of our God. And if you haven't listened to that, I'd encourage you to listen to it. He did a great job. But in our culture, in our world, ever since Genesis 3, which we are not yet to the story we get to next week. But ever since Genesis 3, our sinful bent is to disregard that people have been made in the image of God. And so this disregard for the Imago Dei, if you will, leads to things such as racism, where we've ceased to see someone as a person and just see them as a person with a different skin color. Or we make these really broad judgments that are unfair, sinful, and destructive. When we disregard Genesis 1.27, it leads to us treating an unborn child as a product to be consumed or a product to be traded or a problem to solve rather than a person that's been made in the image and likeness of God. Pornography is a Genesis 1.27 issue because we've reduced the other person to this one-dimensional product that we consume rather than a person who God has fearfully and wonderfully made with dignity and value. What we see in Genesis 1.27 is, is that human life is sacred. It's sacred. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the beautiful thing about Genesis 1 and 2 is that we don't see any of the brokenness yet in this world. We don't see things like racism or hate yet. We, we don't see how sin has left a stain on everything. We don't see how God's perfect creation has been marred by the effects of sin and has been groaning ever since. Instead, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is beauty and perfection and harmony. We we see that we read that God desired that the world be filled with his image bearers, people who he created, who worshiped him, who would reflect his goodness. We see we see ultimately how we are to reflect that goodness. And one of the ways we do that is how humans interact with creation because the rest of chapter 1 gives us this charge that we are to rule over creation, have dominion over creation. And we hear that and we tend to go to one of two sinful extremes. We either say to ourselves, yeah, that's right, we have dominion over creation and so we abuse creation. Instead of being wise caretakers of creation the Lord has given to us, we abuse it. We really could care less about the environment. And yet, as we read these words in Genesis 1, we can't walk away and get that tone. You can't get the idea that the Creator God looked back and said, it is very 
good. And then we can somehow interpret that as, well, who cares about it then? No, he said it's very good. Instead, he's saying you have dominion over creation. I'm the creator, you're the creation, and you are charged with being caretakers of the creation. And then the other extreme is this one, that we worship creation itself, that creation is ultimate. For instance, we care more about animals, fish, birds, and trees than we do about human life, the creation in which God looked back and said, it is very good. And so we can worship creation. We see creation as ultimate. We see the mountain as as ultimate rather than the mountain leading us to worship the one who created it in the first place. We reflect God in how we rule wisely over the world and how we care for his creation. We also reflect God in in our rhythm of work and rest, which we see both work and rest in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2 begins with this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God, is, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then you skip to verse uh, 15, and you read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So in the garden, before sin has ever entered the picture, we see both work and rest. We see God creating for six days, and we see him resting on the seventh day. We see him establishing at creation a rhythm to our week, where we set aside a day of rest and focus on the Lord or what's known as as the Sabbath. You see the Sabbath show up in the Ten Commandments, that we are to honor the Lord by keeping the Sabbath. Now, being New Covenant Christians, that we are in Christ, We don't obey the Sabbath because we're obeying Old Testament law. We obey the Sabbath. We honor the Sabbath by grace because we want to reflect God in this weekly evidence that we are saying, Lord, we're finding our rest in you and not in ourselves. So by grace, we do that. Much like we can slip into two sinful extremes like we can when, when we rule over creation, we can do the same thing in work and rest. On one extreme, we can lift work up as an idol, where we can't stop working. We have to keep creating. We have to keep moving forward. We have to keep striving, laboring, accomplishing, driving. And yet in doing so, we're worshiping the created thing of work rather than the creator. In our striving, we are failing to find our rest in God. On the other extreme, we reject the idea of work and pursue the idol of apathy and laziness. We may assume that work entered the picture in Genesis 3, but rather the labor or the toil associated with work is what entered the picture in Genesis 3. We see God creating and working in Genesis 1 and 2, and we see it in verse 15 that, that he commands Adam to work and to keep the garden. So we've been designed and created to work, to improve, to maintain, to advance, the idea of work is all over the book of Proverbs. So we've got to reject both these extremes that we can be bent toward because in the end, we can make both work and we can make rest an idol. We're probably bent one way or the other. Rather, we see in the story of creation, we see this God-established rhythm to work and rest. And in both our work and our rest, we are to enjoy the Lord. We delight in the Lord in both work and rest, not one or the other. 
It's not, oh, it's a Sabbath. I can finally delight in the Lord. No, we delight in the Lord the other six days of the week when we're working and vice versa. By setting aside a day of rest and focus on the Lord, we're declaring to our own heart, to our families, to our watching world, that work is not my idol. That work is not my identity. Rather, I'm found in Christ and He is my identity. So we rest in Him. We trust in Him and His ways. And that when we labor and we are heavy laden, we come to the Lord for rest, rest for our souls. As Christ followers, we reflect our God when we follow His example in both working and uh, and creating and in the resting. Because ultimately, both our work and our rest are designed, are intended to worship the Lord. Uh, Listen to Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So wherever you work, whatever the Lord has called you to do, we do it for the Lord and His glory. So if it's working as a student, if it's working... Uh, at cutting grass, cutting hair, teaching, administrating, constructing, selling, managing, driving, designing, caring, building, diagnosing, leading, in all of that, we do it to reflect our God. This last week, uh, Heather asked um, Maddie to come home from a volleyball practice, and, and, and Heather asked her, and I think this is the first time the question had been asked in this way. She got home, and she goes, so, uh, Heather asked her, so how was worship? And it kind of caught her off guard. And then, oh, I, I know what you mean. I, I get it. And I love that. And I have a feeling this is going to stick with our family because Christians, we often, you will walk out of this room and you'll go talk to someone and say, my house worship. Oh, they sang my favorite song. They didn't sing my favorite song. Oh, it was intimate. It was exuberant. It was, and however you describe worship. But we reduce worship to about, this week, about 15 minutes a week. We reduce worship to simply singing. All right? But all of life is intended to worship. So when you get home from work, how was worship today? When you get home from that practice, how was worship today? When you're at home, how's your worship? When you get home from watching your kids' stuff, how was worship? Did you worship the idol? Or did you worship the Lord? How was worship? This should be a question that we ask one another during our weeks how was worship because we've been called to reflect god in everything not just sunday mornings not just when we're with other christians but in everything we've been created in the image of god and so as god's people we reflect him in how we rule wisely over the world and how we uh and how this rhythm of work and rest and then also in how we relate to him and to others genesis 2 starting in verse 4 These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then skipping to verses uh, 16 and 17. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So we reflect God in how we relate to him. So right here in verses 16 and 17, we see one element of our relationship with the Lord is obedience. Here's this beautiful garden. Here's all the joys of the world. You can eat from every tree in the garden. And here's my one boundary I'm going to give you. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of the good of good and evil. For if you do, you'll surely die. So in this garden, you'll find all the, all the pleasures, all the joy, all the delight that you can ever imagine. But you will only find all of that if you pursue that, that joy, that delight within the boundaries, within the parameters that I've given to you, which in this case means, means avoiding this one tree. And we've read Genesis 3. We know the end of the story. We know when, I, when we look at our own hearts that Adam and Eve disregarded this command. Sin enters the world. But that's, nec- that's next week. This week is God's perfect, harmonious, beautiful creation. This week is all about being an image bearer of God and reflecting Him. So in these verses, the Lord is always intended uh, to, uh, He's implying that one element of our relationship with Him would always be obedience. He's the creator. And so as a result, He is the one who determines how His creation is to act. The creation doesn't have the authority to trump the creator. And so we hear the word obedience, though, and there's something in us that just kind of bristles at it, isn't there? This is not just the students in, in this room. This is all of us. We just kind of, mm, and that's the sin nature, but this is not Genesis 1 and 2 yet. Obedience, I mean, there's something that we kind of associate the word begrudging with or burden, but the Lord never intended that obedience to him would be uh, equated with affliction. Instead, it would be delight that he's created creation, he's established creation, he knows best how that creation is to work and operate, and so he has our best interests in mind. So when we obey the Lord and when we obey his word, we're saying, Lord, we trust in you and not in ourselves. We worship you and not in ourselves. We want to reflect you and not ourselves. We know that obedience leads to freedom. Disobedience leads to death, we find out here. But obedience leads to life and joy and delight. And then starting in verse 18, we see that how we reflect God not only in our relationship with Him, but horizontally with one another. It says this, And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his flesh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man. Wait, maybe that's not. It says woman, sorry, Um, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The first thing the Lord declares as not good is that man was alone. 
And this is not just about being a single dude and that being bad. This is not just about marriage, okay? This is about speaking that as humans, as God's creation, we were not intended to live in isolation. We were intended to live in community and relationships in the context of marriage, but also a broader context of with one another. If you notice that in Genesis 1 and 2, it's, or, uh, 126, it says, let us make man in our, in our image. So there, right there, we saw it last week, but there we also see this, this teaching, this behind the scenes of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. That we've been made in the image of a triune God, a God who exists in community with himself. Therefore, we reflect God when we live in community with one another. Yes, God saves individuals, but then he calls individuals to be part of a family. He's saving a family, he's saving a, a church that will be his light to the world, but then one day enjoy his presence forever. So he's saving a family. A, a, there's, there's an individual saving, but then there's a corporate saving to a family, an eternal family that will be saved from the wrath of God and enjoy rest in the Lord forever. And so we choose so when we choose to live isolated, isolated lives and apart from the family of God, then we're, then we're not reflecting how God has called us to live. When you're married and you're choosing to live isolated lives and just kind of coexist as roommates, we're not reflecting how God has called us to live. Sin always wants to divide. It always wants to isolate. It always wants to drive a wedge in relationships. But in God's perfect creation, we don't see that division here. We don't see that isolation. We see unity and togetherness. We don't see the effects of sin yet as we read Genesis 1 and 2. It's beautiful and it's challenging because we're given this reminder of how God originally planned this world to operate and how his image bearers would multiply and fill the earth and, and care for and rule over the earth and how these people would, would work in a, in a way, in a rhythm that would honor and glorify God and not list, lift up uh, work or rest as an idol. And they would also be these image bearers that would obey the Lord in everything. And through that obedience, it would lead to their life and it would lead to their joy and their delight in how God's designed his creation to work. It would lead to freedom. And yet we read these verses, we see this picture, and we see how we are to reflect. And we think to ourselves, that seems like a tall order. That seems like an impossible task to get it right every single time. And I would agree. And you know what else? The Bible would agree. The Bible would say that we fall short of God's perfect glory, that we will not bat a thousand on this, that we will fall short of getting it perfectly right every, every time. Because ever since Genesis 3, we have uh, failed to reflect our God. We have this DNA of sin that we've been stained with. So even if we think we, we're doing it right, even if we're, man, we're batting a thousand on that obedience test, then if that's the case, then we're just puffed up with pride and self-righteousness. Sin manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. We're all born with a heart that has been stained by sin. And because of our sin, the perfect image that we are to reflect is broken. It's as if we're standing before a mirror and that mirror has been shattered and we might see uh, glimpses of what we were to reflect, but it's not perfect. But in Jesus, we see the perfect reflection of God. He is the only one in all history who has been unstained by sin, who is without blemish. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
Hebrews 1.3 begins with, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. This is why we worship Jesus and not ourselves. This is why we need a Savior and we're not that. This is why when we look at our own hearts and our poor reflection that we realize we need a Savior, we need someone who can take away our sin and who can enable and empower us to live in a way that reflects our Creator again. One who is our model, one who we pray saying, Lord, change me, transform me. Colossians 3 10 speaks of the, uh, that, that section that we're putting off this old self and we're putting on a new self. A new self that is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Ephesians 5 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So in Christ, when we, when we give our lives to Him, when we surrender to Him, and we trust and follow Him, we're brought back into relationship with Him. And then we're charged to imitate God, to reflect the image of, of our creator that we've been originally charged to in Genesis 2. And then we're promised that the Lord will be faithful to do that work, to transform us more and more into His image, one degree to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is given to every believer when we get saved. And in doing so, that Spirit empowers us and enables us to live the life that we were always designed to live, a life that in everything we would reflect our God. If the worship team could come back up. Uh, We're going to close in singing together. Um, We've got much to celebrate this morning, don't we, church family? We we have uh, the baptism. We have lives being changed there. The picture of that. We have this reminder from Genesis that we've been made in the image and likeness of God, that human life is sacred. We have this encouragement to live our lives in a way that reflects Him and honors Him in all these different areas. So as we sing, we're going to take our offering. Uh, We're going to worship God not just with our voices, not just with our lives this week, but with our money. In the gospel, we see that God is a generous, generous God in the giving of His Son. And so as we sing, I just encourage you to uh, reflect that generosity, not for our glory, but for His, to reflect His majesty and to reflect His goodness. Let's stand up, let's sing as a church family, and let's worship God.
Father God, we are, uh, we are grateful that you are majestic, that you are holy, that you are beautiful, that you are on high, that you are powerful, you are strong, you are everywhere in this world, you're all-knowing, you're ever-present. Thank you that in your image you've created us, and God, I thank you that you've enabled us through the cross, through the resurrection, through your Holy Spirit to live lives that reflect you reflect you in, in, in every way, that honor you in every way, that glorify you in everything. Thankful, we are thankful for grace. Father God, thank you for your, your goodness. Thank you for your just extravagant love for us as your people. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this church. And I pray that this week we would worship well, that we would worship well whatever we're called to do, whatever roles we have, that we would worship you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Get your resources for the series. If you haven't got those yet, meet somebody new and enjoy a week of worship.